Welcome to the Ralph Moore Podcast. Gain the leadership advantage as Ralph pulls wisdom from his bag of over 50 years experience in planting and leading multiplying churches. Our goal is to help you live as a leader you'd want to follow. You'll learn about making disciples and planting churches, but beyond that, you'll gain practical wisdom about subjects like how to manage your team, handling difficult people, pulling a congregation off a growth plateau, and even money management. Hey, welcome to the podcast. Today I want to call this little talk that I'm doing, Think Small, Think Again. I remember when I first became a pastor, there were 12 people that showed up in church and you know, we we're kind of disappointed. We were looking for a bigger crowd and these were mostly our friends and family and my infant son. And then we grew by 50% by the next week. It's now 18 people. And um, instead of enjoying that and rejoicing in the smallness of what was going on and the relationships that we built, I can remember our, our first after Thanksgiving service. We had a lot of people that were kind of living on the road in those days. It, we, it wasn't really homeless. It was people who kind of wanted to be hippies and and just go out and experience the world. And, and so they'd have no place to go on Thanksgiving. And, and there's just general fellowship in the church. And by this time, we're a congregation of maybe 50 people. And so we just had everybody who'd had a Thanksgiving dinner at their house. First, we asked people to invite others over. But then we did an after-Thanksgiving dinner on Sunday night and just brought all the leftovers and pulled everybody together. And we had fellowship that was very, very rich. And, and yet somehow I demeaned that. It's like we're trying to be big. We're trying to be big. And and then we did get pretty big in a hurry. Within a year, we were at 200. And a couple of years later, it's at 400. And eventually that church grew to a couple thousand people. And, you know, I look back now and I, I think I missed something. There's a lot of fun to be had in a smaller congregation and in a smaller town. And I missed out on that. And I wonder if some of you are missing out on something that's right in front of your face, that you're in a really beautiful situation. You've got really good relationships that are just so natural that you don't really have to even work too hard at building those relationships or reinforcing them. And and yet you're looking at the guy, you know, across the country or somebody whose book that you read, and you're feeling kind of bad about what's going on because it doesn't seem like it's enough. And that dissatisfaction, I think, hinders the Lord from doing what he really wants to do in in the church that you're in. And, you know, I've recently become aware that, uh, that a fourth of the population in the United States lives in communities of less than 25,000 people. That's 90 million people. And then when you add to that the fact that in many urban areas operate people operate in neighborhoods, and those neighborhoods are, in effect, a small community. And you may be pastoring a smaller congregation and a smaller congregation in a smaller place. Well, you know, i got some news for you. The bigger churches are often just imitating what comes so natural to you. And if you can just kind of think about that and from a different angle, and maybe you're going to feel a little more blessed than you felt before you heard this. You know, not for a New York minute would I regret the big churches that I've pastored. However, the the last few years of my pastoral ministry, I was involved in a church that, for the most part, was a church of about 200 people. And eventually it kind of grew to 300 when we were getting ready to hand off the baton to the next pastor. And you know, a lot of people were really excited because he came to town, and that was a good thing. But I can remember when we got started, things just kind of kind of came real natural for us. It was just really easy for people to 
to step up to the plate and get involved. And and it, for me, it was a kind of a much more enjoyable experience than the time that I had in the bigger churches. And so I want to talk about how larger churches, including mega churches, imitate small churches all the time. I mean, the most obvious imitation is in the area of community. You know, when we were pastoring a big church in Southern California, we started using the term mini church to gather people together in small groups to build on the relationships that would be there in smaller groups. And as this all happened, we had grown pretty rapidly, got to a church about 400. This is during the hippie time, the Jesus movement thing. And and we were a counterculture church, and, and we were scorned by the Christians in the community. You know, they called us hippity-hoppity-hope and the hippie chapel and dope chapel. And actually, there's some pretty good reason for the dope chapel deal. But all of a sudden, we, we well, we, not all of a sudden, it took a long time, but we got some property. And we moved to an ocean view location on a prominent intersection. And suddenly, all these middle-class people who had scorned us before decided that we were an appropriate church for them at least to come and visit. And so our attendance went from 400 to 800 people in a week. And then it began to shrink and shrink pretty rapidly. And we're frustrated because we'd really become a congregation of strangers, at least 50% strangers. When the growth happened real quickly, that's something you might think is a good thing, but it wasn't a very good thing for us. Even in the very beginning, when we went from 12 people to 18 people, it distorted what was going on in our church. And so we began to look at smaller churches and go, what do they do and what do they do well? And and what did we do really well when we were really small? And so we came up with this concept of mini church and it's just, it's cell church. It's, it's what you're all very, very familiar with, except we, we did it with a twist. And the twist was that we identified it as church instead of home group or life group or whatever. We, we call it mini church and we call the leader the mini church pastor. Now these guys begin to really shepherd the flock and did it in a way that surprised us, that that they're looking after their people. And, and, and pretty soon we begin to view what we did on the weekend as a large uh, convention of small churches. And we started to see the pastor of the mini church as a real pastor. And and so in California, we, you know, we got them to do funerals if we could. We got them to do to participate in weddings because we legally couldn't do that. When we moved to Hawaii, we could actually get the mini church pastor the ability to perform weddings. And so they did that. They did baby dedications. They did baptisms. We do these big, large beach baptisms and a whole mini church would come into the water. And I just kind of stand off to the side and watch as the people who really loved these people were baptizing. These are the kind of things that just can happen so easily in a small church if you let them, if you encourage them. And, you know, you might be pastoring a church of 45 people. Well, I see three mini churches. This is the kind of stuff that big churches are doing to try to imitate and emulate the things that come so naturally for you. With the whole concept of mini church, there was zero programming in the mini church. I mean, we had a, a format for how we do it, the questions that we ask, the things that we do to draw people together. But it caused us to be able to limit the programming and the money and the time that we put into programming in the larger church. And again, we're imitating what would come so naturally to you. Another area where uh, big churches are imitating small churches is, is in that of disciple-making. You know, we're realizing that there's a real deficit in our country in terms of disciple-making. We've come up with this word discipleship, which basically means drink coffee, read your Bible for 20 minutes, and pray in the morning. 
And that really isn't probably what Paul had in mind when he said, follow me as I follow Christ. And so we're kind of coming to grips with the Great Commission all over again. And and so it's it's causing us to take a different look at disciple-making. And as we get into the concept of disciple-making in larger congregations, again, we're being frustrated and we're having to program this stuff and we're having to build it as best we can. And, and, and yet in a smaller community, um, there's just existing relationships. There's family relationships. In a smaller church, oftentimes the people are, you know, all married to each other's cousins and all that. And it it just becomes easier for a leader to, because you know everybody, you know who's who in the zoo. It's a lot easier for you to begin to identify the people who are the natural leaders in the church. And once you do that, then you begin to figure out ways that you can disciple key people and then that you can build around them a network of other people who need what you're giving to these people and what they have to give to others. And again, something that would come pretty simple, pretty natural in a smaller church is something that takes a lot of effort in a bigger church. Again, the, the pastors of the larger church are trying to do what you could do really well if you realize it's there and you go for it. Another blessing, I think, that comes with small churches is in the area of ministry focus. The way that this works is, you know, you get a big church and you're you're thinking about, well, we can do this and we can do this and we can reach all these different people in all these different ways. And, and it gets it gets very expensive and time consuming and all of that. And, and, and yet in a, in a small town, because you have limited resources and because you have limited leadership resources, you're going to be in a situation where focus just comes naturally. You know, when I was a youth pastor, I worked in a church that, you know, I think it grew to about 160 people. And there's a guy in the church who got this idea. He'd, he'd been in Mexico, and he'd seen a town that basically burnt the whole place. Um, you know, there were adobe buildings, but the building, the roofs were burned out. And there was no fire truck for 40 miles. And so every day on his way to work, he would he would pass this standard oil refinery, and there was an old fire truck, like from 1925, that was just parked out there that they had at one time used in the refinery, and it was just going to rust. And so the guy began to to harass the people at Standard Oil and ask for that fire truck because he wanted to recondition it, restore it, and give it as a gift to this village in Mexico, and to the villages around about really. And so this thing began to really take some life, and it became a three-year project for that church. And people in the community, non-believers in the community, everybody got involved in that thing. I mean, there were the people who did the auto body work on it, people who could recondition pumps. Somebody donated money to buy new hoses. Um, Somebody else found a place where they could get recap tires inexpensively. You name it, they did it. And that church came alive around that one single project. And it it was it fit our resources. We didn't have a lot of resources, but we had enough to do that. And then there was this big parade of people driving from the San Fernando Valley in California down to Mexico to deliver the fire truck. And then a relationship built with the people in the village. These kind of things come natural in a small church. I just came from Tampa, where I was involved with the Tampa Underground. And I have huge respect for this this cluster of congregations, there's like 120, 130, I'm not sure the exact number, of microchurches. And they've intentionally planted small churches and then clustered them together around a hub. The leaders meet like once a month for a worship time together. 
but they're in, able to do extremely focused ministry. I mean, there are some housewives that are going into a strip club, and they've started a microchurch and a strip club for girls that are there, and they're rescuing girls out of this lifestyle. That, to me, is an incredible thing. There is a, a ministry that is just designed to give young African-American kids a leg up in terms of innovation. And so they're kind of the innovation microchurch, and they're teaching these guys how to how to build a life, really. But people are coming to know Jesus, and, and they're making disciples in this thing. So here's a, a, a big city, a massive city, and, and yet here's a cluster of really small churches that are really focused on really tiny areas there. And these people are reaching about 4,000 people in a week, with a hundred and some small churches. On the other hand, I, last week in the podcast, we talked about and interviewed my friend Jervy Windham, and he's been able to go into a, a relatively small town, Texas City, Texas, and again, just focus on three or four areas, and he's building up a congregation around what would be seen in a big church as limited focus. And so I can remember staff meetings and and, you know, leadership retreats and annual planning times. And we're always talking about how do we refocus this thing? How do we narrow it down, the stuff that we're doing, so that we become more effective and more efficient at the same time? These are the kind of things that just kind of come natural if you're in a smaller church. And then there's this deal of just engagement within the church family. When we started Hope Chapel in Honolulu, which was a church in a movie theater, it was the third church that I planted in my life, we actually had a pretty large core group, about 70 or 80 of us, because I had you know, handed the baton to the, to the church that I pastored, the big church in Hawaii, and we were starting over in this movie theater, and a lot of friends came with us. And so you know, that was the easiest church plant, and, and the one where we didn't have to worry about money because these people knew how to tithe and all of that. But... As we got going, we we were, you know, kind of stumbling our way into figuring out how to do this. And we'd rented five uh, theaters in a, in a movie theater that, you know, we actually had all five of them. And uh, we started in a very awkward auditorium. It didn't work very well. And we sort of stumbled our way forward. We didn't have much of a worship team. And, and yet, you know, to me, that's kind of like pioneering churches. You know, we do this launch large thing or we... Uh, you know, parachute in with a you know, with we we buy worship leaders from other places. I really don't believe in that stuff. What I really think is going to win the day is something that's infinitely reproducible, infinitely scalable, and and that's where you kind of start with what you have and you build out from there. But as we were starting this last church that uh, that we pastored, there's a lady named Lois Chung, and she's just the sweetest person in the world. She starts bringing food. Nobody asked her to bring food. She just starts bringing food. And she's given stuff away after church that she baked the day before. And pretty soon there's three or four ladies that are bringing stuff. And so we kind of took a look at this, and we decided we're not going to ever ask anybody to bring food to this church. And we went along for like three or four years, and there's dozens of people now that are supplying food every week for the time in the theater lobby after church. And at first we were a little nervous that the theater go along with, you know, us providing our food instead of buying theirs, but they loved it. And eventually the church grew to the point where we had to, because one thing that happens as you grow larger, uh, people are a little bit less engaged and pretty soon the church is having to buy food and, and supply food. And, and yet there still were that cluster of people that were doing stuff. So there's this engagement that takes place inside a small church where there's a family feeling, and that's a pretty wonderful thing. 
as we talk about this engagement concept, well, then there's the community engagement that just, especially if you're in a small town where everybody knows everybody's business and everybody's into everybody's business in a really good way, then it's pretty easy for a church to identify need and to respond to need in, in ways that are real healthy and, and very, very good. And so, again, these are the kind of things that in a big church, and we're trying to duplicate the stuff that just seems to come natural in a small church, and particularly in a, in a small neighborhood setting or in a, in a small town, really very, very interesting stuff. And then there's this whole business of community saturation. I was involved in the L.A. area when I planted the first church. So that's like seven or eight million people. And I went to a conference, and the guy said, you know, draw a, a radius around your church of like 12 stoplights, you know, because people aren't going to pass through more than 12 stoplights. He said they'll drive 50 miles to come to church. They won't go through 12 stoplights. And and then begin to think how many people live inside of that radius. And so we did that, and it came out to like 100,000 people. And that's just a lot. And we were in a town that, that officially had like 45,000 people. In fact, uh, both churches that I pastored that were the big ones were in towns of 45,000 people, Manhattan Beach, California, for starters, and then Kaneohe in Hawaii. So I went out and I went to 13,000 houses that made up Manhattan Beach, California. I just took the whole zip code and went to every single house with a little piece of literature. And all I did was wedge it into where they're, you know, between their doorknob and, and the door frame and, and left literature. And if people opened the door or they were out washing their car, I'd hand it to them. And I'd struck up conversations. I, I had gone and knocked doors first, and that seemed to threaten people. And they got angry with me. And so I just left literature. And then if there were somebody that was willing to talk to me. And then we had one neighborhood of, oh, maybe 200 houses. And we would hit that neighborhood with every piece of literature that we came out with. I kept making new different pieces of literature for different sections of the city. But the reason for generating new literature was just so we could saturate that one area of those 200 houses. Interestingly, over the years, we got seven church planters out of those original 200 houses. And so this idea of narrowly focusing that can happen pretty easily in a smaller town can happen even in a bigger place if you're willing to to focus it down. And then when we were in Kaneohe, there are 10 public schools in the Kaneohe area, the 45,000 people that live there. And we were 16 years in one public school and 18 months in another public school. So we're pretty involved in the school system. And because we're involved, um, we got involved financially. We started putting time into it, volunteering it. You know, first the schools that we were renting, doing stuff for them. But then as other people began to hear about it and we started to see needs, well, then we began to respond. And so we would take a very significant portion of our budget and just donate it to public schools. And at first we were just dumping money in and we'd, you know, give it to the PTA or whatever. And and then they came back to us and said, you know, you guys are actually better at identifying need than we are. That was a really positive thing to say because, see, we had eyes and ears into those schools because people in our church had kids in those schools. And so we could see the needs in ways that perhaps from a bureaucratic viewpoint, you weren't going to be able to see. And so they came to us and said, would you, instead of giving us money, just go out and find things that we need and figure out and then work with us, but then you buy those things and gift us. And the cool thing about that was we weren't just dumping money anymore 
or even dumping the stuff that we were buying, we were engaging with the people in the schools and some of those people end up coming to the Lord and come to our church. Again, if if you kinda if you're in a big church and you're listening to this, draw a smaller line around a smaller radius and begin to focus on that radius and these kind of things can happen. If you're in a small town, rejoice in the fact that they happen pretty easily. You know, I was in I guess I was in Texas a few weeks ago and as I was leaving, I was in the airport, and a guy who had been to the conference uh, came up to me in, in the airport, and we had a really wonderful talk, and he's in a town of 7,000 people, and he's been working real hard to build a freeway church. And I don't know if they got freeways there, but you know what I'm saying. He was going to try to build a mega church by drawing from the communities all around and you know just sucking life in some ways out of small towns. And he decided instead he's going to focus on the 7,000 people that live in his town, and he's going to try and build a big church there, which I think is important as a hub. And then he's hoping to plant a whole bunch of microchurches and just saturate these 7,000 people with the gospel. And I recently heard somebody say that we'd reach saturation if we had one church for every 1,000 people. Well, that would be like seven churches in a town of 7,000. Uh, you know, I I think it's more like one church for every 200 people. Uh, some people would say one church for every 300 people. And now we're probably talking small churches in, you know, s- smaller neighborhoods yet. But if we can begin to look at these things a little bit differently, I think that we can begin to really uh, do what Jesus said. And that's go out and make disciples of all nations. And, you know, when he says all nations, it's all ethne, all people groups. And if we can reach different people groups with the gospel and really get in there and make disciples among them, then we are going to change the world that we live in, and we're going to change it in some really wonderful ways. And so whatever you think of the smaller-than-you-wished-for place or the smaller-than-you-would-wish-for church that you're called to serve, it's never too small for you to make a big difference. And, you you know, in a small place, you don't even have to be a big frog to make a lot of noise in a small pond. So, anyway, till next time, thanks for listening. If you enjoyed today's podcast, be sure to subscribe and check his blog at ralphmoore.net.